Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, um, which now feels like antiquity it was so long ago. Yes, I think I remember you were Euripides, Tom, back (laughs) in those days. This week we're discussing Parasite, the Oscar-winning 2019 South Korean film directed by Bong Joon-ho. It tells the story of a poor family living in a flood-prone basement flat in a Seoul slum. By clever scheming, each member of the family manages to become employed in an extremely wealthy family's house, um, following the success of The Sun in getting work with them as an English language tutor. But the comedy soon gives way to grotesquerie as the deceit becomes dark and murderous. It won Best Picture at the Oscars, uh, which was the first time a a non-English language film had ever won that accolade, the BAFTA for Best Film in a Foreign Language, and the Golden Globe for the same thing. It follows Burning, um, a 2018 Korean critical success, which had also been the first um, Korean film to make it into the final nine film shortlist for the Best Picture at the Oscars. So this is clearly a kind of rapid rise, um, at least on a global Uh, scale of Korean film, a sort of art house um, success story, really, uh, um, mass market success. Empire called um, uh, Parasite a miracle of a film, um, and The Guardian called it a flawless tragic comedy, and there was just endless amounts of of raving by both punters and critics. To add to that raving, uh, Dave Calhoun in Time Out said, this is a dazzling work, Uh, surprising and fully gripping from beginning to end, full of big bangs and small wonders. Um, Whereas Mark Mode said that Parasite finds gasp-inducing depths lurking beneath even the most apparently placid surfaces. Um, To pick up on what you were saying about awards, Zoe, it's also interesting that Parasite won the Palm Door, one of the first films for several years to be unanimously uh, voted for by the jury as the winner of the Palm Door at Cannes. Um, And actually that marked quite a shift because only a few years before, uh, Bong had had a much more skeptical reception in Cannes with his film Okja, because it was one of the first films to be shown at a major art house um, festival that was made by Netflix. And I might, we might want to come back to this at the end, but Bong Joon-ho is a Korean artist who nonetheless has been working with Hollywood and working with these big American production companies like um, Netflix for several years now. I suppose the first question, Zoe, to ask is, did you like Parasite? How did you find it? Well, I, to be quite honest, as you know, I always am on this, um, I didn't, I didn't warm to it, A, and B, I didn't, I honestly didn't see why it was, you know, what the fuss was about. I didn't see why it ended up being the, the breakthrough film, the one that won the Best Picture Oscar, um, the one that kind of got the whole world a buzz and talking. So I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. I thought it was obviously extremely clever. There was something very satisfying. It was a, it was a sort of playful, satisfying um, 
story themes tropes you know it, it was it was almost i suppose shakespearean in a way in the terms of the symmetries um but i just didn't like it i i think that you know it was quite it was interesting that you have this working class family who are so poor and who do manage to swing themselves to a pretty plush set of jobs but they're so unsympathetic by the end when the whole thing descends into violence and they they are i think very unsympathetic basically from the moment they start getting the other staff members sacked so that they can 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 get those roles that i i think it was it was uncomfortable i didn't understand why i was being asked to sort of side with them if indeed i was i think maybe i wasn't but but their sort of scheming and their their ruthlessness and their amorality was obviously front and center and i think that for me is probably the most interesting aspect of the film why the the poor are you know there's nothing sentimental about them they are a they become very amoral and are and i think where some people watch that and they think that's because they're poor others like me watch that and think there's no excuse to be so amoral <laughs> so i found it very pleasurable uh i did think it was a very gripping watch it didn't hit the heights of some of his other films for me nor indeed did it compare with that very wonderful film burning by Li Changdong that you alluded to earlier, Zoe, and that we might come back to um, in our discussion. Um, what I thought was interesting about it, though, exactly as you say, this question about the moral economy of the film, it's very unclear which side you're meant to be on. And although the, um, the poor characters have a kind of cunning and have a deviousness, as you say, you are sort of cheering them on with their ingenuity, and they have a solidarity amongst each other. Um, whereas if you think about the, the Park family, the middle class family, it's a much more fractured set of relationships. And it does feel that one of the big things that Bong is trying to do is show the alienation within middle class Korean homes and within middle class Korean families, that these are relationships that are extremely broken. Um, and one of the actually innovative things about the way that was shown in the film was the construction of the house itself. You know, the Park's house that he had specially built on a, on a studio um, that he sort of devised this space in order to do these remarkable shots through the interior, um, you know, through the staircases in particular, that constantly remind you of how isolated these middle-class family members are from each other. Um, in terms of the amorality, Zoe, I'm not entirely sure that it is justifying the criminality of the working classes. I suppose what it's saying <laughs> is that the middle class, I think it's saying that the middle class rich entitled family have the luxury of being um, kind or being naive. I mean, the mother, if you remember, is a complete moron, the one who hires, uh, first of all, the teenagers. And her gullibility and her kind of softness and her kindness is actually the fact that because she's been so cocooned within privilege, oh. that it's made her a complete idiot. Whereas the, the poor characters mm. have got to be a little bit wilier. They've got to be smarter. Um, partly because life's given them quite hard lessons. Oh, sure. I mean, I think the poor ones have to learn how to scrap and to survive, but I don't think that's a license to kill. Um, and, also, <laughs> and also, I don't think being rich means being nice. I mean, since when are rich people nice? I mean, by and large, rich people are awful or not nice, stingy, sort of not naive. In fact, there's many wealthy people who are extremely shrewd. So this is not, I think this, this is deceitful. There's a sort of, there's a, there's a slipperiness here that we're expected to say, oh, well, that makes sense because they're rich so they can afford to be nice. I've never heard of that, for, uh, rich people affording to be nice. Are Russian oligarchs nice because they can afford to be? Uh, is, you know, I, I just, I don't buy it, I have to say. 
there's also, you know, but it's interesting because you sound just like the wife, the poor wife in the poor family, because they, the husband says they're rich, but they're nice. And she says they're nice because they're rich. So again, I, I don't go for that. I think also, um, I don't think he, I think he doesn't necessarily go for that either. I think um, I read one review in the New York Times that said um, that the director, Bong, is on the side of decency. So, but I thought found that interesting because I, I didn't think that was actually clear. And indeed the, the title of this film, Parasite, he's talked a lot about how it's supposed to be um, a precisely split double kind of meaning. So you automatically think, oh, it's the, the, poor, the, the poor family are parasitical. They're kind of edging in and taking over the, the rich families, the park's house. But actually what he wants us to think is no, what we see is that they can't even do their own dishes. They're parasitical on the, the labor of the poor, but the labor of the poor, the poor are being, they're being paid. I mean, the, the, the rich people, we don't know how they got their money. Maybe he was born poor and he became rich. We don't know, but there's a sort of slight mm, complacency about the assumption that because they now live in that house, they're so entitled, they're so unable to do anything for themselves. All we know is that they have money. So I, I, think, I think one has to be, I think one can and one should be a little bit more nuanced or critical about that sort of very plain and simple seeming message of rich, bad, poor, bad, but you know, they have a good excuse to be so. Absolutely, and he would agree that he wants you to think about the parallels between the two families, not just the kind of collision of classes, not just the kind of class difference, but sort of moments of, you know, synergy or moments of overlap between the two sort of arcs of the story. And um, that he did give an interview, Bong, in which he said, and I think this is very interesting, I don't think that I'm burning with revolutionary spirit. Instead, I'm constantly exploring why revolutions are so difficult, why it's so difficult to discern our opponents and what we have to fight against. And I think that way, you know, that the movie presents it as if it's sort of two families that are at war, and then actually the two families come to resemble each other more and more. It's that weird convergence, I think, um, that Bong is interested in. Um, and precisely, what, although we've got the kind of, uh, you know, the aspiring poor family, the devious ones, we also have to put in the other family who are desperate, who are being kept in the basement, for whom, again, um, the Kim family become a new set of oppressors. And so he refuses the simple binary. And I suppose what's interesting here is that he doesn't come down, as I say, on any one side. I do think the two sides start to look more and more like each other. And what both sides have got in common, to come back to your point about Labour, Zoe, is that they all rely on personal networking. This is not an image of capitalism that relies on fixed class positions or sort of fixed labour responsibilities, but actually is all about networking is all about personal favors, nepotism, connections, and the way that people help each other through these kind of um, acts of sympathy or acts of complicity. And I suppose it's suggesting that that's how maybe the rich operate, but it also tells you something about this is how the poor operate as well. And so although there are sort of Marxist overtones of class rivalry here, actually class is probably not the most helpful category. This is about the haves and the have-nots that both operate through favours, that both operate through this kind of moral skullduggery. Um, and one aspect of that moral skullduggery is their ability to reinvent themselves. I mean, one thing that was very interesting to me is that this is all about forgery and fakery and the false appearances uh, that people can kind of present in society. Um, how far did you think that this was an alluring image of South Korean society, Zilbo? I mean, is it, is it a straightforward sort of satire and critique of the gilded world of uh, the South Korean bourgeoisie? 
Well, I think when we were talking about it before, Tom, you, you put your finger on it well, which is this, I think it conveys a sense of what you said, a sense of something terrible hovering out of view. And I think that might suit the Korean setting in the sense that, you know, there's obviously North Korea just up the road. Um, there is a sense of danger. And then underneath that, there's a sense of chasms within the social structure as well. Um, and I think there, there probably is this huge disconnect between what one might think of when one thinks of Seoul uh, or, or, or South Korea, which is, you know, Samsung and incredible economic success since the, since the Korean War. Um, but actually, and, and you know, a lot of materialism and, and very, yes, very gilded uh, strata of, of life for sure. But then, as you say, there's this sort of sense, the reality is grotesquely inverse to that. I mean, I've been to Seoul. <laughs> I deserve a medal, of course. Um, and I've been up to that. There's a whole sort of mountainous district that is where the Samsung dynasty lives. And it's all like sealed off, um, you know, huge walls and for, it's fortress-like. Uh, and you can see how just down the road, there are probably people who, who look up at that and, and loathe them. One last final memory from, from my time in Seoul, which I think- <laughs> We're enjoying like, this travelogue. <laughs> the travelogue, but the seductions of capitalism. I mean, so courtship, for instance, takes place entirely through um, its literal seduction of capitalism. It's not even sexual seduction, it's the seduction of capitalism. So boys and girls or young men and women meet and then the, the men present gifts and the women choose the gifts and the gifts they choose, whoever man gave them, he wins. You know, he, he then becomes the boyfriend of the person they go on the date with. So you kind of lead with the, with the objects. So yeah, and I, I, think, I, mean, I think it might be interesting, Tom, maybe you know more about this than me. How does Korean Christianity, which is we've heard so much about recently as the locus for so many coronavirus outbreaks in, in Korea, but I wonder how the, the sort of fervent, I guess almost evangelical Christianity sits with, um, with this sort of immense worship, I suppose, of, of capitalism and how maybe that gives rise to just one of the fault lines that Korean filmmakers find interesting. I think it's, I mean, there's a couple of things there, that, Zoe, that I think are really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'd say is you're right, is that capitalism is repellent, but also very seductive in nearly all of these films. Um, and the Kim family, you know, quite literally want to become the Park family, which is why, again, the politics of Parasite is complicated. It's not just a straightforward story of overthrowing the old order. It's a story about how the kind of the outsider's dream of becoming the, new, the old order and aspiring to exactly the same kind of leisured life, which might have sort of exploitative kind of overtones to it, um, as other groups do. Um, the other thing I'd say is that capitalism in Korea seems, or at least the movies about capitalism in Korea, seem particularly interested in the illusions that they generate. Um, the illusions and the delusions. Um, you know, the mother in Parasite, the, the Mrs. Park, is convinced that her brat of a child is an art genius, if you remember. You know, part of the reason that she gets in the art classes is that she's convinced that he's going to be a new Basquiat. Um, and she allows him to have this kind of imaginative world built around Native Americans, you know, which creates the weird final images at the end of the film. Um, but at the same time, the, the son um, of Mr. Kim at the end, you know, in the very tragic final image, is waiting for the day when he'll be able to earn enough money in order to buy back the house and save his father who's captured in the basement. Now, Bong in an interview has said that it's gonna take him at least 
546 years, he reckons, to be able to save up the money to ever buy back the house. But capitalism is predicated on exactly these kind of illusions. The idea that one day you'll make it. You know, if you just work hard enough, if you just graft hard enough, you'll make it. Um, and it's, a, it's an illusion which he thinks is obviously unsustainable and condemns um, many people to, to a life of hardship. So he's interested in the fantasy dimensions, in people's misunderstanding about themselves, I think. Um, and that comes through very much in Burning as well, where the poor character is fascinated by the brilliantly charismatic but seductive westernized character and played by Stephen Yoon, who himself is a Korean-American kind of crossover actor. You, know, you might know him from The Kind of Walking Dead. Um, but who lives this astonishingly gilded, pampered life that the working class character becomes hypnotized by. You know, even, even though he can see the evil that might be lurking within it he becomes completely infatuated by it. So, so what's interesting in all these films is that capitalism is the sort of source of the sickness, but it also has this kind of hypnotic appeal um, to some of the characters from the outside. It does leave the question of what are, what are people supposed to do? Is there a middle ground and is the blame entirely on capitalism? And I would always argue that maybe there is something more to be said about human morality there and there's a problem with that rather than you know, the easy thing, I think, is to blame the capitalism, which is just a, a backdrop mechanism, I think. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, just too, it's just too trendy and, and simple to just say, oh, it's capitalism's fault. And I think what these films are interesting about is that they are showing a sort of moral, uh, moral desperation, a problem, a void, that is allowing both the expo is exploitation and, and, frankly, dangerous, violent urges to be, go unchecked in the... In, this is in the case of burning, not parasite, in the, in the rich. Um, but it's also allowing the poor to kind of completely lose sight of decency and just go hell for leather for murder and, and, and theft and crime as well. What I think is interesting in, in the moral economy of this to come back is that a lot of the characters in some of Bong's films or indeed in, um, in Lee's films have virtues that are then pushed to breaking point. So sometimes these, these characters you know, begin from a place of virtue, but then that virtue morphs into its opposite or it becomes something um, quite different. Uh, for me, the best movie that Bong has ever made is this film called Mother, um, which is about a woman who is desperate to try and clear her disabled son of an accusation of um, murder. And, you know, and she's an incredibly sympathetic character for the majority of the film, but as you follow her, her desire for justice or her desire to sort of do right by her son pushes her into ever more extreme and weird behavior. Um, and I suppose this brings to another key thing about Korean cinema, what's been seen as one of its defining um, elements is the way that the tone of Korean cinema or the genres of Korean cinema can bleed in and out of each other really quickly. Um, so you can be watching something that is, a, that is a drama or an action movie that then morphs into a horror movie, that then morphs back into a comedy, that there's something extremely, you know, unstable about the, about the tone of these films. Um, and that invariably there's a long buildup of menace and then this huge violent eruption at the end of the film. Um, but the, on the way, the, the tone and the genre is really uh, perplexing. Um, I think you don't like that aspect of Korean cinema, Zoe. Well, no, I mean, it's interesting. I wouldn't say Korean cinema. I actually think these sort of violent tonal shifts um, isn't necessarily an aspect of, of all of the ones, all of the films I've seen, certainly not burning so much. But yeah. um, Parasite, I was repulsed by the tonal shift. I'm not cut out for that kind of thing. When I sign up to a kind of, you know, a comedy style thing, 
I do not want it to become slapstick horror, blood everywhere, murder, nasty. I feel like I'm getting ever more trapped in a basement of horrors. And I know that, you know, other people find that sort of genre in itself, i.e. horror, kind of great. They like watching it. I don't. But I also found it, I, I found it discordant and not in a good way. But actually, it was interesting, I have to admit, how I suppose things can go from the kind of light and comedic into the into the genuinely horrible. But I, I think it didn't, I didn't like it here because I thought that what was being portrayed as comedy, i.e. these people's terrible life in this basement slum, being flooded, having to get the internet on the toilet, just terrible working, barely being able to hang together, that was all supposed to be funny. And so it didn't make sense to me when your sympathies were with them for it being funny. And then what happens when they become monsters, basically, or when, when everyone gets dragged, sort of turned into a monstrous setting i found it wild and unpleasant maybe it was clever but i i just thought it sort of didn't work but clearly i'm the only person in the entire world um who thinks that but you mentioned in terms of this wider business of, of korean cinema i mean i i was interested in how it seems to, i just did a quick sort of look at why you know it's taken off so much and i, I gather that you know in the 80s there was censorship you know, up until yeah. the 80s, there was, there was a lot of censorship in Korea and, ho- and many Hollywood films were censored and there was anything but a liberal um, entertainment sector. And then in the 90s, they decided the censorship was lifted and the Korean government, I think, decided to subsidize yeah. uh, Korean films so that they could have an art sector that was thriving and brought in money and stuff. And what's so interesting is how they talk about capitalism, they poured money into it. And the result is this sort of world-beating uh, film industry, which is the fourth highest grossing, box office highest grossing industry um, in the world after the US, the UK, Japan, and China. So we're talking like big payoff for a small um, country. And I think it's also just interesting to note that the same, you know, efflorescence following this input of money gave rise to K-pop, which is also, which is like possibly (laughs) the most successful art form in the world when it comes to money. Tom, do you have any sense of how this rapid rise of, of Korean film in all these interesting ways that we've been discussing. The, the lurking menace, the sort of double play around um, morality, the amorality, the gender, the capitalism, the money, the relationship to all of these things. How much do you think that is embedded in, in modern Korean kind of history and society? Um, and how much do you think sort of the, the, the terrible threat and presence of North Korea uh, affects the shape of these uh, films in this, this film world. It's very interesting the North Korea mentioned because it is there in, uh, in Burning. I mean, one of the weirdly eroticized sequences in Burning is where the female lead dances topless on the border, looking out towards the DMZ. Um, so this sense of there being a kind of, you know, a fault line or a kind of a, a fundamental division written into Korean identity is weirdly staged in, in, in that film. Um, and indeed, in a lot of um, Lee's work, indeed, lots of them are set near and around um, the DMZ. Uh, in terms of your bigger point about the evolution of Korean cinema, I think it's really important to remember that South Korea was a highly authoritarian country um, until at least the end of the 1980s. Um, and so the kind, of the, the kind of growth of democracy in Korea is one of the forces that helps propel the Korean new wave, as it's known, these kind of absolute rebirth of Korean cinema from the late 1990s onwards. And you're also dead right to say that there's a huge domestic market in Korea for these films because of the fact that foreign films for many years were highly censored and were restricted to a certain number of showings. 
And so a lot of these huge hits in Korea, you know, might be seen by something like 25% of the South Korean population. I mean, there's an appetite for domestic film um, and kind of Korean language film, which is just enormous in South Korea. Um, it's interesting that some of the ones that are the most popular in South Korea are not the ones that travel and do brilliant in the West. You know, the, the kind of the art house crop that we get in an American cinema or on a British cinema is quite different from some of the most popular things in Korea, which include horror movies, um, very famous zombie movie called Train to Busan, which again has an element of social satire in it, you know, an element of, of joking about inequality as these different people on a train get devoured according to social class. Um, but yeah, horror is very influential and very important in Korea, as indeed is historical epics. I mean, the kind of thing we very rarely see, but you know, the most successful box office movie from Korea is called The Admiral, which is about a sort of medieval naval battle. So, so yes, there's a whole world of Korean cinema of which we only see a very small proportion. Well, um, to cut in there, I mean, I treated myself to one called High Society on Netflix, which apparently was the highest grossing the weekend it came out in Korea, which didn't really make it in the West. And for good reason, it was appallingly bad. Um, but it was about, it was about not to kind of giggle at some domestic, I mean, there's many worse American films made for sure. But, um, you know, it really was about a family. It was, again, it was about money, capitalism, about wealth. It was about aspiration. It was about scheming, 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 and lying, corruption, this couple, very ambitious. It was a bit of a Macbeth kind of, Lady Macbeth scheming to kind of push the husband into a position. So I just thought that was interesting as well, that there was this glitz and glamour scheming capitalism theme still very strong in the domestic cinema, it seemed, just based on that one. The other thing I'd say, Zoe, is that um, Bong has said that one of the strongest influences on him for Parasite, and indeed one of the films that's become a sort of master text for all South Korean cinema these days, is a film called The Housemaid, um, which was a sort of rather twisted melodrama that was created back in the early 1960s. And so it's important to remember that the first golden age of South Korean cinema actually was in the 50s and 60s with these melodramas. And Housemaid is the story of a composer and his wife who bring an outsider into their family, uh, in this case, the domestic servant, and how she, as a sort of femme fatale figure, goes on to wreak chaos within the family. You know, she um, seduces the husband, um, she then kind of corrupts the children. She's behind the murder of different family members. And this theme of what looks like a sort of safe, comfortable middle-class family being, you know, corrupted, being eaten from within by kind of dangerous outsiders is obviously one of the big inspirations that you can see um, playing out in Parasite too. So, so there's a, there are sort of, the, Parasite is a movie that's aware of that history, that kind of Korean cinematic heritage. Um, the other thing I'd just say to pick up on what you were saying um, about violence and genre and all of this is that Korean cinema, I guess, is one of the most um, eclectic in its influences. You know, that what I'm interested in in Korean directors is that they borrow their stories from all over the world. Um, Burning is based on a short story by Murakami. Um, the Handmaiden, which was this very lush kind of quasi period piece. Um, was actually based on um, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, you know, based on a Victorian British story that then's translated back into a Korean context. Um, so there's something about a kind of Korea's desire to be a world cinema, which means that it's a kind of cultural magpie. You know, it finds its inspiration from all over the place and then translates these things back into sort of recognizably Korean settings or, you know, recognizably kind of Korean predicaments. Um, so if we were to stand back um, and think, 
why is Parasite the movie of all these Korean films that's captured um, the imagination of so many American and European viewers? What do you think its secret is? Well, as I said at the start, I think there is a very satisfying cleverness. I mean, I watched this with my dad, um, who's the first person to get bored and fall asleep in a film, especially one with a complicated plot, and he was delighted by it. Um, so I think, I think there's a symmetry, a cleverness, um, and, a, and a weirdness, um, a, an offbeatness that people find just thrilling to watch. But I think that there's also the way it allows people to get their marks on. So um, <laughs> as in M-A-R-X. Um, so I think it, it, you know, I read a couple of reviews that said it was so brilliant because it, it was a commentary on universal themes. And the, the, so we hear a lot about the widening gap between rich and poor, and obviously the super rich um, are richer than ever before. So this is obviously thinking about that gap and what happens when you try to bridge it. So, you know, I think it was just, it got, gave people a chance to think about that. I mean, we've had, you know, Thomas Piketty, his bestseller about that huge economics tome about this and about the kind of wealth gap and, and rich and poor. So I think it is playing to, it is impressive. I mean, that is ambitious. It's playing to this universal theme, not love, but the gap between rich and poor. So I think that, yeah, that's it for me. What about you, Tom? I think it, it partly, as you say, Zoe, it feels like uh, it's a brilliant piece of plotting. Um, one of the special things about Bong is that he sort of bridges the gap between art house, you know, high intellectual movies and popcorn entertainment. Um, and sort of unlike uh, Lee Chang Dong's Burning, which is, I thought, wonderful, but my God is slow. Like this is a sort of languorous, slow build of a film. It's very Hitchcockian in a way. This is really much closer to a kind of crime caper or an action movie. Um, and the thing about Bong's films is that they are very, you know, many of them have been very fast, you know, and are full of these kind of wild effects and gore and kind of discordant shifts that keep an audience entertained and excited. Um, to echo what you've said before, Zabo, so as well as the fact that it bridges sort of pop culture and auteurism, I think it's also that he's giving people fables about capitalism. There is a sort of st a storytelling kind of quality here. There's a sort of simple fairy tale dimension to these stories about rich and poor um, that he's exploring across a variety of these films. Um, have you seen Snowpiercer, Zoe? I've seen it. I thought the dialogue was the worst I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, almost inexcusable, but, but visually, visually amazing and, and interesting as a concept. And then once again, sort of the train as a metaphor for capitalism. But without any spoilers, it also resists any easy resolution. That when the lower orders come face to face with the man who's been running the train, there is then a conversation that's quite unpredictable in terms of, you know, who is really the villain in the story is suddenly sort of unmasked. So, so he's creating these fables about capitalism. You know, Okja, the story about the genetically modified pig was another version of this. There are these kind of myths about the late capitalist condition. Um, that he's been very successful at spinning out and tapping into current anxieties, not just about rich and poor, but also about environmental catastrophe, as you say. Um, the only other reason I'd say why the hype and why the breakthrough is that Bong is also the Korean director who's been most plugged into Hollywood and to kind of American production, I think, for a while. It was quite telling um, at the Oscars that he paid tribute to both Scorsese and Tarantino in his speech, because he was in the same category as them uh, for best director. And there are lots of Tarantino-like elements in the way, again, that kind of comedy and hyperviolence are combined um, in these films. He's also, as I said, the guy who worked most with Netflix when it came to Okja. 
Um, and he's also a director to make English language movies, as in Snowpiercer. So in a way, if any of them were going to have their breakthrough, he's the one who's been positioning himself increasingly as a Korean director who's already got one foot in the American camp. Yeah, so maybe he's also benefiting from connections and network because actually <laughs> the film didn't particularly seem like an obvious global hit. But join us next time when we actually hopefully will tackle Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hariri. Or is it the other way around? Noah Yuval Hariri. I can never get it straight. It's Yuval Noah Hariri, <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay. 